0: Let me point out to you before the message this morning that as we sing the final hymn this morning, there are only selected stanzas of that one, two, and four, if you'd notice that. I won't remind you of that again, so just be aware of it. We turn to the 15th chapter of Matthew in our study of this gospel. I've chosen not to deal directly with the first 20 verses, not because any part of Scripture is unimportant. Everything has something to teach. But there's a renewal of controversy with the Pharisees here that we have met a number of times already in this gospel. And I wanted to put some focus on the passage beginning at verse 21 today because of the way it shows a direct contrast about the subject of faith with Peter and the same subject as we saw that the last time at the end of chapter 14. So listen as I read Matthew 15. Beginning at verse 21 through verse 28. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly with demon possession. Jesus did not answer a word. Yes, Lord, she said, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. This is the word of our God. I believe the dominant sense of personal entitlement that many Americans have today makes it very hard for them to swallow and understand large portions of the Bible. We are a privileged people, privileged in material things, in freedom. We have so much that most of the world does not have. It's very easy for that to slide into a subconscious idea that we would have of entitlement to more. Millions of people estimate that they are basically good people, at least as good as anybody else and better than many. And so, while they don't actually take it out and write it down this way, they do assume quite often that God owes them blessing, favor, A good life, if at least he plans to give these things to anyone. And so, for instance, when they face a biblical concept like the doctrine of the covenant of grace, wherein God singles out one people named Israel and treated them throughout the Old Testament period as a special channel of his blessing so that he would pile blessings and works upon them that were intended to spill out and affect other nations. But the very idea of God choosing one nation over another is absolutely repugnant to many people. Why, how could he do that? How could he not give equal opportunity to everyone? How dare God play favorites what kind of an American is he anyway? Apparently, God has not heard about the 21st century idea of American political correctness. And even the very idea of God's divine grace, that is, his undeserved favor bestowed where he chooses to bestow it, despite the fact that human beings all deserve nothing from him. There's another concept that comes very hard to people. What do you mean I don't deserve anything? You know, they say Amazing Grace is still the by far and away the, the favorite hymn of everybody, but I can never understand that because most people do not accept the theology of that hymn at all. Saved a wretch like me? Most people don't think they're wretches. And in fact, if you press that very hard, they'll be very offended quickly. Well, today we look at a unique passage of Matthew, one with some things in it that maybe create a superficial misunderstanding from the start. And it's a passage that lets us meet a unique woman, a woman who was the ultimate outsider, The ultimate person not entitled to anything, and she knew it. And because she knew it, she teaches us about deep gratitude for receiving the very least of God's favor. Now, just to glance back for a minute, in in Matthew 15, 1 through 20, Jesus jousted again, it's happened many times in this gospel, with Pharisees who were seeking ritual cleanliness. They were upset because his disciples didn't wash their hands a certain way. And that led to a very big discussion. And it was a discussion about keeping up rituals, obeying minute laws that made a person clean on the outside, regardless of how full of bigotry and resentment and anger you were on the inside. And these people just couldn't see that. Well, now we transition at verse 21 from people with an unremitting hostility to meet one person with unexpected trust and faith. The transition at verse 21 says Jesus withdrew. I'd remind you what he's been trying to achieve over the last chapter or so, beginning at the time that led into the feeding of the 5,000. Remember, he was trying to have a retreat with the disciples. After the death of John the Baptist, he wanted time to be alone with them, to teach, to pray, to withdraw from the crowds in Galilee. Well, it didn't work Uh, on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. So many people showed up that they dominated the entire day and A a supernatural feeding of them was required to satisfy their hunger. And then he came back across the lake with that incident in the middle of, of Peter walking to the Lord by his little faith upon the waves and the wind. And now, having discoursed a little bit in the old conflict with the Pharisees, he still wants that retreat. And so this time, Jesus and the disciples go north if you can picture the map at all of Palestine in your mind, you know the Mediterranean Sea. I've got to turn around to make it your way, but the Mediterranean Sea is over here. And, and they went north along the coast of the Mediterranean to some, the area of some Gentile towns called Tyre and Sidon. These were not Israelite places. There were very few Jews there, and in fact, those who had settled there were the The descendants of the ancient Phoenicians, you've heard of the Phoenicians, once a powerful people who in the time of Joshua and Moses were the Canaanites who were supposed to have been driven out of the land, but they were not driven out, and they had settled some of them in that area. We would call this, by the way, southern Lebanon today, where Jesus was. Everybody was basically pagan, Gentile, non-Jew. They didn't care that much about a Jewish miracle worker. They, his reputation didn't mean a lot there. But even so, Jesus went there quietly. Mark chapter seven twenty four, in fact, says he went in secret so people wouldn't gather around and, and disturb them. Well, our author Matthew is 100% Jewish as an individual. But it's surprising that despite that, his gospel is one that tells a lot about the inclusiveness of the gospel, which is growing and gradually expanding towards a surprising cast of Gentiles. All the way back to the very beginning, remember the Magi coming to Bethlehem, non-Jews, non-covenant people, coming from far eastern lands, the very same areas that are so troubled today with war and our country's involvement. Possibly they were Iranians, as they came from that area to come as Gentiles and bow and give wonderful gifts to the new king of the Jews. You might remember, too, chapter 8 of this same gospel, the Roman centurion, not just a Gentile, but a hated Gentile, an officer of the occupying power who came and asked Jesus for a healing and said, you don't even have to, Lord, don't bother yourself to come to my house. Just say the word. I know you're a man of authority. Use your authority as I do. And he was commended for faith. And these non Israelites in Matthew show a startling type of faith that actually makes the 12 disciples look kind of like what I used to call pikers by comparison. They really don't look so good alongside the Gentiles who trust Christ. And then Matthew 28 is going to close in the words of the Great Commission in this gospel, to go and make disciples of all nations. Well, last time we heard about Simon Peter's little faith. It wasn't little in its amount. It was little in its weakness, Because it had every good reason, with the Lord Jesus present there doing supernatural things, to look to him, hold on to him, and be allowed to share in that powerful work that he was doing. And yet it looked away and faltered. Today we're looking at a woman who is said to have, not little faith, great faith. And the irony is that her unlikely circumstances and the obstacles in her way without any miracle to react to, and, and even what seems like a discouragement from Jesus put in her way, make her faith wonderful, that she grasped Christ and held on to him and trusted him despite everything. I think there's a great encouragement in this passage. Because you and I actually come from more similar circumstances to this woman than we do from circumstances similar to Simon Peter. And if this woman could have great faith, so can we. Now, verses 23 and 24 give us a first point here, and you might be surprised to hear how I'm going to summarize it by saying this. Jesus Christ has always loved Gentiles. Now, that doesn't seem to you what this passage is saying, does it? Because a superficial reading of this passage always makes people think Jesus is being hostile to this woman. He's rejecting her. Why would I say Jesus Christ has always loved Gentiles? I want to say there's something happening beneath the surface of this passage that you don't always grasp, and I must say it took me years of, of seeing some of the subtleties that are here to really see the wonder of it jump out. Somehow this woman, despite her being a Gentile and Jesus moving about incognito, knew who he was. She calls him a very specific term, Lord, a term of high respect. But more than that, she says, son of David. She identifies him in messianic terms, Not a Jewish woman, but one who says, this is the son of David. Somehow his reputation has found its way to her. And she comes, and and the, the idea we're given here is that she's shouting and crying out and really making a fuss. Lord, son of David, have mercy, my daughter is tortured by a demonic spirit. Well, again, Matthew calls her a Canaanite. Right away, that's a mark. That's like a brand on her forehead. Enemy outsider, non-Israelite, somebody our ancestors should have killed. And she's speaking loudly. She's making a fuss that is not comfortable. She's creating a scene. And the disciples of Jesus are not comfortable because they do not want to be in the middle of the vortex of another crowd scene that will drag Jesus' attention into other people and take him away from what they've come there to do, to pray and to learn at his feet. And so as she keeps on screeching, I don't know how long, you see the disciples come to Jesus and they don't ask a question. They make a declarative statement, get rid of her. Do something that will get rid of her and and stop this uncomfortable scene. Now, right there, I think there's a little application for us, a minor one perhaps, but important nonetheless. Isn't that the way we feel toward people with messy lives, needy lives? Sometimes they're on their knees in our daily path and they're making a scene and they're making a noise, and maybe they're crying out toward us or maybe they're just crying out in general Help me, help me, help me. And what's your reaction? Don't you, like me, often say, where's the door? (laughs) I want to get away from this. This is embarrassing. Doesn't this person understand that that's not the polite way to act? Well, thank goodness the Lord Jesus Christ was more compassionate than his subordinate ministers were on this occasion. They wanted to get rid of her. He did not express that at all. But then the curious thing about verse 23 is it says, Jesus did not answer a word. Now, most people read that and they, they would say, well, silence means a brush off. Silence means rejection. Why didn't he speak? He, he so often was eager. Sometimes he went out of his way to make the first approach to people when they didn't even cry out. And here's somebody crying out piteously, repeatedly, and he doesn't say anything. What does that mean? Well, if silence meant that Jesus was unhappy, I would at least suggest to you that his unhappiness could just as easily have been expressed towards the disciples for their rejection of the woman as towards anything the woman was doing. Maybe the fact that he didn't say a word had something to do with the disciples' behavior. I would also remind you that there were other times in the ministry of Christ when there were delays in his response to things. Just think about John chapter 11 when his friend Lazarus was dying. The 911 call came to Jesus, get here quick. Lazarus is dying. We seem to understand he was about a day's walk away, and he stayed there two days and arrived later when Lazarus was already cold in the tomb with a an amazing and bewildering sense of, what did you wait for? Why didn't you respond sooner? And the response there was because he intended to do something greater than everybody expected. It seems as though the Lord is moving cautiously in response to this woman for a good reason. First of all, he was testing her. I think he wanted to draw her out. Secondly, this was unusual territory. This was a venture into Gentile territory. And he was asking himself, how widely am I going to push into this place and this kind of initiative now? The silence of God sometimes can be the silence of patient grace and of his intending to do different things than you think he should be doing right now in your life. If you come up against this kind of silence yourself from the Lord, don't be entirely surprised. Now, it's not easy to know exactly who Jesus spoke to when the next thing occurs in verse 24. There's a statement here that again seems to reject this woman. He speaks something. I ask you, who do you think he was speaking it to? And I can't answer the question for you. He says, I was sent only to the, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Was he speaking that to the woman? Was he speaking it to the disciples? Was he speaking it to both the woman and the disciples? Was he possibly just murmuring this to himself as a reminder of something that was important to keep front and center in this situation? I can't give you the answer to that. But you see, it is consistent with what Jesus was doing in the world. Back in Matthew 10, 5, and 6, he sent the 12 out on a preaching and healing mission. And what, what instruction did he give? He said, go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I'm not sending you to the Gentiles. Go to the Lord's covenant people as your first errand, your primary assignment. Now, that's consistent with what he says here. And unlike what some, there's a commentator or two, not too many, but one or two who who burst out and really criticize Jesus and say, what a terrible thing for him to say. What What an outbreak of racial bigotry, one commentator says. Jesus was a bigot here. That he was saying, I can't do anything for you because I'm sent to the Israelites. But what he's really saying is... I need and all of you need to know there's a primary assignment working here. It's the assignment my father gave me, and that is to show myself as the Messiah expected by the house of Israel, God's ancient covenant people. That is priority one in the work that I am doing, and I've got to be sure that I don't forget that and I don't go astray from that. Now, God's original covenant design, you see, was to work through Israel, not for Israel only. That's the impression we get, and that's the impression, unhappily, that many Israelites had. God was their private possession. Not so. God's intention in the covenant beginning with Abraham was to take this model people and say, I will pour out so much blessing and so much powerful work on you that the nations will be amazed. And they will say, the God that is in the midst of Israel is the great and true God. In other words, I will reach the nations through you. Well, it's almost as if you could say, in a crude manner of speaking, that instead of becoming the shining lighthouse to the nations, the Israelites took everything God had to give and wrapped it in boxes and hid it away and said, this is ours. It certainly is not belong to anyone else. Now, after the cross of Christ, after the resurrection and the day of Pentecost, we see God's plan bursting out. The gospel is announced to all peoples, and the Gentiles come, sweeping in by the thousands as adopted covenant children, the adopted children of Abraham that Galatians and Romans 4 and other places say, if you're Abraham's child by faith, you are truly Abraham's child. But that wasn't happening yet, and it wasn't time for that yet. That was going to happen after the cross, when it would be true what Romans 1.16 says, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. To another woman, the woman of Samaria at the well, in John 4, Jesus told her salvation is from the Jews. That didn't mean the Jews invented it. It meant, in a manner of speaking, that the Jews were, a, were like a great tree, the trunk of the tree. And from that trunk, many branches were going to grow in all directions for the salvation of our God to come to the nations. But remember, the trunk was the main issue there. And so the Son of God did direct his primary ministry to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, who really were lost sheep, nearly all of them, with few exceptions. He didn't make it his endeavor to go to Rome or to go to Athens, or go to Alexandria, Egypt, or any of the other great power centers, political centers, wealth centers, where he could have stood in the Acropolis, or the, the Senate of Rome, or something, and declared his me- That wasn't what he was here for. He knew his salvation message would get to those places one day, and actually conquer those places. But that wasn't the errand right now. And yet there were Gentile individuals, as I've already mentioned, the Magi, the Roman centurion, and and now this pagan woman who step in closer to what Jesus is doing and saying, Isn't there a portion for me? Doesn't God have some grace for me? And the answer of this passage, as we read it rightly, is that long before the cross, long before the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts, Christ's blessed salvation was intended for God's elect who are located in every land and tribe and people group and language group of the entire world. God and Christ have always loved Gentiles. Point two, as we go further into this passage, verses 25 to 27 make another affirmation. And I still think it's a positive affirmation. And this is the part we we need to have some information to unravel correctly. But the point is to say this, that Jews and Gentiles eat one salvation meal from one and the same table. Now, this Canaanite woman persisted in asking Jesus to heal her daughter. Some people, I think, mistakenly think the point of this, this uh, lesson is persistence. I don't agree. I think that's only an incidental point here. But she did persist. She was desperate. She wouldn't take no for an answer. She had learned, I'm sure, in her society as a woman that if you wanted to accomplish something, you had to persist You had to knock on the door because powerful men that had something to give you would only pay attention if you made enough noise. But in this case, Jesus did not respond because she made a lot of noise. And he didn't respond because she wore him down. And the fact of the matter is he didn't have as much resistance to her as it initially appeared. He was putting her to the test by speaking something to her now that To you sounds very strange, and I know you think it's offensive. He asked the question Is it right to take children's bread and feed it to their dogs? I'm helped a great deal, and I really believe this is a right track of interpretation by quite a few commentators who unite in saying, you know, that tone of voice and attitude and facial expression make a big difference in how something you say is understood. Let me give you an example. If, if uh, today I, have, I found out that a long-lost friend of mine, a, an excellent friend, uh, showed up at the 11 o'clock service and greeted me afterwards, what if I came up to that person and said, well, look what the cat just dragged in? Or what if I said, why, you old scoundrel, what are you doing here? you'd say, boy, he must not like that person very much. That person might be my best friend in the whole world. And that's my way of speaking to him, speaking affection to him. And we do this kind of thing all the time, but, but people understand what we're saying, that, that our words are actually pulling their leg in a manner of speaking. Well, there's a detail here that you wouldn't pick up that really does make a difference in how you understand this text The detail is, again, knowing the Greek language and knowing that Greek has two different words for dog. One is very offensive. The other is not offensive at all. The original word or the most commonly used word probably is the word that Jesus used in Matthew 7-6 earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember when he said, Don't give dogs what is sacred. Don't throw your pearls to swine. And he definitely intended that to be an insult. And the word he used for dog there was the more common New Testament understanding because that wasn't that much of a pet society. Dogs were scavengers, half-wild wolves. You didn't go up to them and say, nice, nice, doggy. You know, you'd lose your hand. They, they lived by eating garbage. They ate unburied carcasses of animals or even dug up human graves. They were not welcome. They were not pleasant. And to call someone a dog by that word was the deepest insult. Here's the interesting detail. In Matthew 15, 26, it's one of the few uses in the Bible of a different word. And I think the NIV, New International Translation, shows a good sensitivity to that different word when it translates this way, it is not right to toss the children's bread to their dogs. It's the Greek word kunaria, which means basically pet, a domesticated dog. Now, there weren't a lot of these around, but wealthy people had them. They were known, they were understood. Maybe this woman even had one with her. I don't know uh, that Jesus would choose this particular thing. But when you use the word "cunaria," it's not the wild half-wolf you're talking about. I told my wife last night, Hazel will get in the sermon, okay? Every once in a while, you hear about our dog, Hazel, 12 pounds of the cutest fur you've ever seen who sleeps at my wife's feet, not mine. If she's at my feet, she gets kicked off every night. Hazel's cute. Hazel's not vicious. Hazel's a pet. That's what Jesus is saying here. Is it right for a parent to be in their house and here's the meal ready for the children and to say, oh, let's give it to the pet dogs instead who are sitting there with mouth open and tongue lolling out waiting to get anything that will drop from the infant's high chair." That's the scene Jesus was painting here. It's not that offensive a picture. And as a matter of fact, I really believe both Jesus and this woman were smiling broadly by this point in the discussion when she, with her keen and sharp wit, replies, yes, Lord, what you've said is right. That isn't the right thing to do. But even the little pets get to eat the crumbs that fall off the table from the children I think Jesus was laughing by this point. You see, this woman did not dispute that the children of Israel had the first place, that they were the prime heirs of the covenant. She didn't say, I don't care about them, push them aside and let me in. And she didn't say, I have to be a family member with equal privileges sitting at the table. She said, Lord, I don't deserve anything at all. But I'd be very happy if one little crust that the family of God wasn't eating fell to the floor for me to nibble on because I believe the crumbs, the leftovers from God's table where you preside are enough to feed me to the full and no one else needs to be deprived. Now, a sensitive reading of this scene tells us that Jesus does not reject Gentiles, nor does he reject God's covenant plan, which has not yet opened the door wide for him to go out and have a megaphone and say, all you Gentiles, come in and hear me. They're not the natural-born members of God's family. But one commentator shrewdly says, by using this illustration of the domesticated pet, he is actually implying they already dwell within the household of God. And they already have access secondarily to the blessings of God. And we know that from the book of Acts onward, they, in so many words, come right to the table. Maybe your dog does that. I don't know. I've been in houses where the dog practically sits at the t- table and has equal rights, not at ours. He, she's still under the table, but... It's probably coming. My, My wife keeps pushing it as hard as she can. From the book of Acts onward, the Gentiles came to the table. And they as adopted sons and daughters of Abraham by faith, shared fully in the benefits of the covenant. Odd as this text might seem to you, odd as this incident might seem to you, it is one more prediction that Jews and Gentiles indeed eat the same banquet of God. The same meal, one salvation. There's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Therefore, here's a woman who came expecting nothing, and Jesus gave her all. He was so powerful, he didn't have to shortchange any Israelites to bless her. And my third and final point today brings us to the conclusion that Jesus Christ honors faith that clings to him. Against all odds. You hear what he said to her here in verse verse uh, 28? Woman, you have great faith. Let it be done what you asked. And the footnote is added. Her daughter recovered from that time. Notice he didn't say, woman, you're so persistent, I'm just going to get rid of you by giving you what you want. He didn't say, woman, I love your your mirth and your wit, and, and you're a delightful person to be my friend, and so I'll befriend you and do this as a favor. He said, you have great faith. Not great humility, not great wit, great faith. And I want to remind you that only one other time in this entire book, is somebody said to have great faith. It was a Roman centurion back in chapter 8. Two outsiders. A Gentile woman who was Israel's, descended from Israel's ancient enemies, and a Roman officer who was a current enemy of an occupying force in that land, These two come with no access to the heritage of the ancient scriptures, no parental models to teach them of the Lord God of Israel and the Passover and and the law of Moses. And nevertheless, despite every disadvantage, they trust and trust and trust in an absolute way. They trusted the correct person, Jesus, the son of David, and they appealed to him in the correct way on the basis of mercy alone, I don't deserve it, just mercy, Lord. They made no demands, and they held on to him, and they wouldn't let go with unwavering trust, great faith. And so as we draw this together today, learn here that Jesus followed his father's commission to go to the Jew first. That was the covenant plan. He didn't deviate from it. Nevertheless, the doctrine of the covenant, great as it is, as an important principle of Scripture, did not keep him from caring deeply for individual people. As the Pharisees demonstrated in the passage just before this, doctrinal perfection without love is a vice of small minds. We learn also the lesson here that great faith doesn't mean a huge quantity of faith. It doesn't mean a dump truck load of faith as opposed to a pocket full. He already told us earlier that a mere mustard seed dose, the tiniest little dose of true faith is enough. It wasn't quantity that made it great. It was its quality of unwavering trust, immovable, steadfast, clinging hard to Christ despite every obstacle, despite every reason why the thing ought not to happen. And then learn finally here that Christ centered faith is found in unlikely places. We need to know that, ladies and gentlemen. There are people in your life experience, perhaps relatives, neighbors, co-workers that you have said to yourself at least subconsciously, that will never trust Jesus Christ. Beware. You may be talking about the next person to become a child of God through true faith in Him. Don't ever write people off as having lives that are so messed up. The Lord cannot call for effectual faith from that person. Anyone Anyone from any background who comes to Christ the way this woman did, with an empty but trusting heart, goes away with a full heart. Jesus Christ loves to reward people who are willing to know that the crumbs of God are richer and more satisfying food than the fullest material possessions you could possibly have in this present world. The crumbs of God, given by mercy, are a banquet to fill you up forever. And Jesus said, the one who comes to me, I certainly will not cast him out. That absolutely includes you and everyone you know. Glory be to God. Father, A lot of our assumptions are attacked here or torn down. Thank you for grace that is indiscriminate. That everyone you've known by your eternal knowledge from eternity, whatever their name or language or skin color, is going to call out in great faith. Father, I pray that you, would let us have this quality of faith and not refuse the blessing of Christ even today. Amen.